Hi, John. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, to put it as simply as possible, CTED is essentially the, the uh, an arm of the Security Council. So the Security Council, um, after 9-11, created the Counterterrorism uh, Committee of the Security Council and, and introduced Resolution 1373, which is kind of the, the foundation of counterterrorism at the UN level. CTED essentially is, is, sits underneath this, the Counterterrorism Committee. So the committee is made up of, of uh, member states of the Security Council and CTED is this sort of body of experts that sits under the, the, the committee uh, and does its work. Um, so broadly speaking, the, the way we like to describe it is there's three sort of core um, CTED missions. The first one is its, it's original uh, aim, which is assessment. Uh, so CTED and its team of sort of regional experts go out and assess uh, member states and see how they're going with their implementation of Security Council resolutions. So uh, over the last, I guess, nearly 15 years has been not quite dozens, but in excess of 20 counter, um, Security Council resolutions that relate to counterterrorism. And, and broadly speaking, CTED goes to a, a member state with their permission. It's a sort of not quite collaborative, but it's it's not a sort of. Uh, turning up with a stick to shout at the member state about doing things wrong, but it's designed to go in and, and essentially say, okay, this resolution relates to counting the finance of terrorism. It includes um, aspects relating to the introduction of a, a financial intelligence unit, for example. Has the member state introduced that? Here, you know, here's some good practices that this member state's doing. Here's some areas where it might need some uh, technical assistance from the rest of the UN system. So that's kind of the first core mission. On top of that, as CTES mandate has evolved, a sort of two additional aspects of that. So the first of those is kind of broadly defined as expertise. And the idea is that we have thematic experts on everything from CVE to human rights to gender to counting the finance of terrorism, law enforcement and border issues. And those experts work with those member states, both in the assessment missions themselves, but also to, to sort of come up with those capacity building um, initiatives with the rest of the UN system. And then the third and, and probably most recent um, element to CTES mandate, which is the one that I'm involved in, is this sort of analytical piece, uh, which is really around, as, as, as we kind of define it as, as much as possible around trends, which is kind of what we see in our publications. But broadly speaking, looking at all this Security Council resolutions relating to counterterrorism, what are the key key trends, both in terms of um, the terrorist threat, which is less CTED's responsibility, but more about how member states are responding and what are the key sort of issues and, and developments they're facing? Um, and I think that's kind of where where our engagement with with the research really uh, really comes from. I think it was a recognition, and and um, it came in our uh, mandate in 2013. It was a recognition of the need to be uh, a bit more proactive, a little less reactive, um, and obviously came at a time when the the, the sort of conflict in Syria and Iraq was really um, spiraling out of, of control. Might be the right way of saying it. So, I think the idea is as much as possible to just have that proactive function and to say, you know. CTED is a, is a relatively small body in, in UN terms. We're about sort of 50, 55 um, full-time staff. We're engaging with member states all around the world. We're working with the rest of the UN system. We're increasingly working with the private sector. We're working with civil society. All of those people we're speaking to on a sort of daily, weekly, monthly basis, and we're learning a lot of information. But I think we sort of recognized that internally we needed a function of 
collating all of that information together from all these different sources and, and kind of trying to make some sense of it at a global level. So I think, you know, research is an obvious area where you have people from across the world doing comparative studies, looking at in-depth case studies in their own countries or own regions. And so it, in terms of that sort of more proactive approach, joining all those sources together and then overlaying research on top of it was, I, th I think it's kind of the rationale behind it that, yeah, CTED has a, has a sort of unique role in many ways of, of sort of a global focus. Um, and so can we, by looking at how things are, are being done in Southeast Asia and contrasting them with, say, Central Asia or Central America, sort of identify key trends and issues that will be on the radar of the Security Council moving forward. So rather than the Security Council kind of waiting for a, a crisis to emerge, can we bring issues to the attention of the Security Council ahead of time, essentially? Yeah, so the, the Security Council resolutions are pretty clear that it's it's terrorism in all its forms. And, and whilst we don't define what terrorism is in any uh, a resolution, which I'm sure everyone could imagine is a is a problematic um, issue at the best of times, there are sort of 19 um, international instruments which define what terrorist acts are um, without defining what terrorism is itself. So broadly speaking, that is terrorism in all its forms. I think in practical terms, it has had a, a, a much heavier focus on, on Al-Qaeda and ISIL and, and sort of affiliated groups. And I think one of the big challenges moving forward is, is the threat kind of diversifies, um, in particular in relation to the extreme right, is, is understanding how, the, how that fits within the UN um, system. In, you know, the UN is all about international peace and security. And I think there are certain terrorist threats that are maybe more domestic or more localized in their focus and i think that's one of the issues that um that CTED is kind of looking at at the moment to understand broadly speaking where you know obviously isil and al-qaeda have been a, a predominant focus for the majority of the lifespan of of CTED and the, the counter-terrorism committee but i think moving forward as things diversify we'll be understanding where those different threats fit into the un system Yeah, so I think there's, I mean, the UN, I mean, I, I've always been guilty of this. You sort of see the UN as one coherent thing, but actually it's it's an incredibly diverse group of entities and agencies with very different views and different um, mandates. So I think starting with CTED as a whole, um, there's been some really interesting uh, sort of research and writing around the role of the Security Council as a, sign, a kind of um, essentially creating counterterrorism law or at least a sort of soft law so i guess a lot of the the resolutions particularly the recent resolutions um relating to foreign terrorist fighters have created um i mean essentially legal requirements for member states to respond in a certain way by introducing certain measures um so i think the security council in that respect is essentially introducing requirements for member states the, this is how you have to respond to the counterterrorist threat so as discussed, CTED's role underneath that as kind of assessment, analysis and expertise, but other parts of the UN system do play a different role. Broadly speaking, most of that would sit under the kind of umbrella term of capacity building. Um, 
So the Office of Counterterrorism is, is a relatively new uh, institution in UN terms, but their role is to kind of coordinate the UN system as a whole in, in CT terms. Um, but yeah, other, other UN agencies like the UN Office of Drugs and Crime, there's a huge amount of capacity building and sort of expertise building um, work, and, and as do other parts of the system. UN Women is slightly different. Again, does capacity building, but also has some function about uh, around encouraging and, and commissioning research on the gender dimensions of this. So yeah, it, it's a it's a increasingly cross-cutting issue at the UN. I think for a while it wasn't something that the UN system as a whole was really engaged. And I think the, the shift towards um, a greater focus on CVE and PVE, um, as most of the UN system calls it, has really brought in the UN system as a whole and, and all of these broader entities and agencies. And, and I think the other difference with a lot of those other parts of the UN system is that they are a bit more global in terms of where they're based. So CTED is based in New York and, and we travel out from there, but a lot of other UN offices like UNODC have regional offices or have country offices. So they are in a position to work really closely at a local level, um, developing capacity. So for example, you know, a national um, PV action plan or a national counterterrorism strategy, how does a, a country introduce a national counterterrorism strategy? And, and that's kind of where other parts of the UN system say, well, we've worked with, I don't know, 20 different member states to do this. We have a lot of expertise in this. We understand the UN system. We understand um, resolutions and what the requirements are. This is kind of how X country can introduce its own national counterterrorism strategy. And so the, the capacity building role is one that CTED is assessments kind of designed to enable. So there's this cycle of we do an assessment, we'll work with a country and say, you know, here's five priority issues that you, you need to work on. And then we can join with the rest of the UN system and say, okay, well, you're best placed to introduce the, the, the national strategy. You might be best placed to look at a CVE action plan. So I mean, in a, a in broadest possible terms, that's kind of where the UN sits. And like I say, it certainly has evolved quite significantly over the last five years in particular, I would say. Well, yeah, <clears throat> I think the first thing to say is that it, it, given the scope of the, the mandate, which is just increasingly broad, it is very challenging for a, a, a relatively small team. So my team of five to kind of be on top of all of the trends that are happening in relation to all of these different resolutions, all of these different thematic areas and regional um, issues. But <clears throat> the main way we do that is through our global research network. So this is something that's now been around for around four years um, and, and was initially created as, as kind of that um, to help fill that gap, to recognize that whilst we have in-house a huge amount of expertise and experience in the, the UN system as a whole, in terms of leveraging research, it's, it's really that sense of a force multiplier and, and recognizing that a network is, is kind of an obvious way of saying, well, we have our expertise, we, we understand these issues from our perspective and perspective of member states in particular, but what, what else is out there? So. The network has, has evolved and, and grown over the last four years. Um, and yeah, broadly speaking, it, it's now around sort of 100-ish uh, institutions from around the world, but we're always on the lookout for new uh, research institutions and new researchers for us to work with. In terms of, 
identifying sort of key issues and trends. It, it's kind of supposed to be a bit of a, a cyclical um, process. So, you know, as discussed, other parts of CTEL, including ourselves, are talking to all these different actors in different fields from civil society, from the private sector, from member states, and we're hearing what issues are of concern to them. Um, and then we're really just trying to overlay that with what the research community is doing. So, yeah, we, I mean, I, I'm not sure I'm doing a great job of explaining it, but I, I think that's the kind of process around trend identification and, and how we identify key issues. So it's, it, it is designed for us to drive new issues. So we're sort of, we, we can say to the counterterrorism committee, the Security Council, this is an issue that the private sector is concerned about. The research community is doing interesting work on and, and member states have said to us that it's concerned. So here's something you need to be aware of. But obviously we are also, it also works the other way around. So the, the Security Council passes a resolution on foreign terrorist fighters and the returning relocating issue. Underneath that resolution, there's a huge range of issues that they've identified as being of concern and priority. So then we would go out and say, well, um, resolution 2396 adopted at the end of December in 2017 on returning relocating uh, foreign terrorist fighters talks about children um, a fair amount. And children uh, as a standalone issue hasn't been something CTED's done a lot of work on, but it is something that the research community has a lot of expertise on potentially in, in um, other sort of conflict areas, whether it's more in the um, post-conflict, perhaps in Colombia, but what is the research community doing in this space that we can we can use to inform the Security Council? So it, it sort of works both way around. We like to be proactive and, and, and talk to our network, but at the same time, we also listen to the Security Council, see the issues that they're raising, and then and go back out to the network and kind of say, you know, the use of technology by terrorists maybe the potential threat posed by drone that's something that the security council is concerned about or something member states are concerned about what research is out there and what can that tell the security council about this issue So I think this is a really good example of something that is it, where CTED was proactive around an issue that they knew member states were concerned about. So, I mean, terrorist use of the internet is not a new thing or terrorist use of technology, but I think um, a lot of people in the, in the policy space were taken by surprise by the extent of, it, of social media usage by ISIL in particular in 2013, 2014, 2015. And, and so um, in 2017, uh, as this issue, I guess, risen to prominence and was kind of a known issue. CTED engaged with the, the technology sector through the big social media companies. So uh, an initiative was created called Tech Against Terrorism, where we worked with a civil society organization, in this case, ICT for Peace, um, to, to create this Tech Against Terrorism initiative where big tech firms, in, in, in the first instance, could, could kind of engage with policymakers to understand their concerns. So for some, you know, the, the big four, Facebook, uh, Google, Microsoft, and Twitter were the, the founding members of what became known as the Global Internet Forum for Counterterrorism, GIF-CT. So that's been a very obvious mechanism where CTED has kind of plugged in big tech with the Security Council. I think, you know, as, as I'm sure all the listeners are aware, big tech has perhaps not had the greatest couple of years in terms of uh, reputation and, and criticism from specific governments. But I think the advantage of the UN is that we're not seen in a kind of 
partisan or political way. You know, we're a sort of convener of uh, events where these ideas can be exchanged. So we kind of had a slightly more neutral, less political role where big tech can come together and say, we're working with the UN Security Council to look at what we can do with those issues. And I think um, GIFCT has made a huge amount of progress uh, as a collaborative forum for the big four tech firms are increasingly smaller tech firms to come in and work together and kind of identify different ways in which they can make it harder for terrorists to use their platform. So yeah, GIFCT is kind of the flagship, but I think as a res- partly as a result of that, the success of that initiative, um, t- a couple of resolutions adopted at the end of 2017, one our mandate, one on, on returning foreign terrorist fighters, identified that there's broader advantages to sort of public-private partnerships. And so it it called on a number of different paragraphs for CTED and, and for member states to kind of investigate how the, the public and private sector can work together on counterterrorism. So that's, again, it covers a number of areas. Uh, for example, you know, biometrics is one of the big requirements of, the, of that resolution, 2396. Um, and that's something where the, the private sector is obviously leading the technological um, development. So Again, it's something where CETA can work with with biometrics um, experts and encourage member states to do the same. But I think it's broader than just um, border security technology. There's 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 issues around, say, the Stronger Cities Initiative and how can um, local governments, as much as national governments, design in security into their cities in particular. So again, the private sector can can collaborate with governments um in, in this space and I, I think particularly the uk i know there's a big initiative from the, the met police to work closely with the private sector to to think about security whether it's architecture whether it's um i know there's, there's a stat that is used a lot about the number of arms or, or not armed police the number of police that are present on oxford street on any given day and the number of private security um operatives for use of that word um who are present on oxford street on a, on a given day and, and how can the UK government and the Met Police work with those security uh, officers in a, a store to kind of give them enough information that, so that they know what to do in the event of a terrorist attack. So there's lots of different ways the private sector can help with this. And again, this is definitely something that's relatively recent in the in the UN context of the last two, three years and something that's going to be, uh, I think, increasingly prevalent moving forward. Yeah, so I think as as with all our reports, this kind of came from a number of different um, conversations and engagements with different um, partners. But I think it's something where the research community has played a really active role in understanding the extent of um, terrorist use of different platforms and I guess how that's evolved over time. So I know there's been some really interesting research on this by uh, lots of different researchers. Um, and, and so it, it became apparent, I think also apparent from the work of big tech themselves that they were becoming increasingly effective at identifying and removing terrorist content. And it's happening quicker on a much larger scale. Um, but obviously, that doesn't mean terrorists have stopped using the internet full stop. It's just uh, a question of where they've moved to next. So increasingly, they, they, you know, they've identified small platforms with limited um, compliance or oversight of what's on their, their platforms, where it's, it suits whether it's ISIS, whether it's ISIS affiliates or... or, or um, fans or, and the same with al-qaeda as well and the same increasingly actually with the um extreme right and 
they've, they've essentially looked at the the problem and said, well, if we can't use the the big platforms in the way we were doing before, which, as we all know, with with Twitter in particular, was very prevalent and very easy to find sort of terrorist uh, content and engage with terrorists um, in a way that hadn't really happened before. So yeah, it, it, instead they've they've realised that they can use file sharing platforms. They can store their material in different ways and share it and, and still i think as a, the trans alert makes clear, they're still uh, with the aim ultimately of getting a lot of this content onto major platforms because it does increase their reach in terms of recruitment um it just gives them a much wider audience but it's just understanding that they are they're just using the internet in a different way and i, I think yeah there's a, there's a number of things here firstly the work of tech against terrorism to provide that support to smaller platforms so there have been an increasing number of um, smaller platforms that have joined GIFCT and have, have kind of plugged into that um, collaboration, whether it's around um, hashes that they can search for on their, their platforms, but just other techniques that the big big platforms have used. But I think there's just a fundamental issue around scale and, and kind of capacity so that there is a lot more that can be done to support them, whether it's in training, awareness, and giving them an understanding of how to find content, how to get rid of it. But... I think the scale, and particularly around collaboration or, or receiving requests rather from from law enforcement from around the world in different languages and different processes, if you're essentially a, a one-man show or a very small startup, it's it's pretty uh, terrifying to think that you have to find, remove, um, store, and 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 then potentially share terrorist content um, with law enforcement moving forward. So. There's a lot more work that can be done both through GIFCT and through Tech Against Terrorism. But I think that there were, the trends that try to really conclude by, by pointing to the broader issue, which is that there's a lot more that still could be done to, to make it harder to find terrorist content on the Internet and make it harder for terrorists to use it. But ultimately, it's it's not possible to remove it entirely. It's not possible to, to, to remove it. Uh, the ability for terrorists to use the internet. So we, we have to do more around the sort of demand thing. We've done a lot of work around supply and, and and making that more challenging. But in terms of the broader issue, it really does come back to kind of CVE um, programs, I guess, so to, to make it less popular, I suppose, in, in the simplest possible terms. If people are looking for terrorist content, that's kind of part of the issue and, and maybe part of the issue that a lot of member states haven't necessarily uh, given enough attention to. Well, yeah, I think it's definitely different in terms of, you know, for the for the big tech firms, obviously, they, they want to, to, to support um, counterterrorism efforts, but there's a huge reputational risk for them. And they have received a bit of a bashing in the media all around the world for, over the last few years for, for not doing enough. So I think there's a, a reputational risk, there's a financial risk for them. I think with smaller platforms, it, it is slightly different. And it, again, it depends on where they're sort of based, where they're hosted. So I, I don't think those same factors necessarily apply but i think it's it's more of a question of obviously uh, you know not no one wants their platform to be exploited by terrorists or extremist groups uh, i think there's a broad sense that people do want to help and it's really just about capacity and scale and i think that feeling of just being overwhelmed by the the potential challenge and i, I think it is a bit more of that um you know, whack-a-mole approach of we can provide support to one small platform and improve their efforts but there's always going to be another tiny 
web hosting or, or um, file sharing platform that, that Terrace can use. So it, it is a sort of never ending challenge, but I think as much as anything, and I think this is borne out by some of the research, particularly into um, use of Twitter by Terrace, it's just about making it a much harder operating environment. It's it's not possible to prevent in its entirety, but if, if, if the UN and other entities and national governments as well can work with these tech platforms and uh, smaller firms and make it harder and, and essentially help them to remove it it's 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 good for everyone but it's it's an ongoing challenge essentially Um, and just, just quickly on that, I think that, you know this is this comes back to some of the fundamental challenges, and I think this is why we're in such uncharted, uncharted territory because we are essentially saying as a, an international community we don't have a agreed definition of what terrorism is, but we'd like you to remove X content because we we think it's you know, a terrorist or the group um, sharing it is, is a terrorist group, and I think some of these, yeah, the rights and responsibilities, um, and it's not just obviously just around terrorist content, but I think we've seen it in the broader context of, you know, are these companies publishing firms? What, what are their responsibilities in relation to the different companies, the countries they're operating in? It, it's a really challenging space for the companies, but also for governments. And I think regulation, obviously the European Commission is now introducing regulation around um, removal of content and, and uh, introducing the threat of fines for, for tech firms, but it isn't a simple it isn't a simple problem and, and in terms of those responsibilities and some of the human rights uh, implications of a, of a tech company deciding what isn't what is or isn't terrorist content or acceptable content acceptable speech it, it's a much broader issue that um, i think yeah definitely somewhere where the work of research will be uh, hugely useful Um, yeah, it, it's. I mean, I'm still in, in UN terms of these relatively new to the UN system. So I've, I've been in within the UN for about 18 months. But I think uh, it comes back to perhaps your original question around terrorism and, and kind of what the focus of the UN has been. So in, in that narrow sense, I think how, you know, there's obviously been a huge focus on ISIL and affiliated groups around the world in general. But I think for the UN, ISIL and Al Qaeda are kind of terrorist groups that almost all of the UN members agree are terrorists and 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 because of the global nature of, of the sort of ISIL phenomenon and particularly the foreign terrorist fighter phenomenon it's an area where everyone can kind of agree it's a it's a priority and we need to work together on it and I think in in, in some other more national or regional context it, it then gets more problematic um, and I think yeah it then flows over into these broader issues where if we're starting to work with different sectors and particularly the private sector those definitional things will be problematic and we've seen uh, over the last few years really the challenges for for the likes of Facebook or Google or Microsoft or Apple of 
how do they engage as a global company when in a national context, yeah, different governments have different definitions of what terrorism is, what um, speech is allowed in that country. And I think in many ways, the technology companies are kind of at the forefront, not just of the, the terrorism issue, but that broad sort of lack of international consensus around some of these, um, these issues. Yeah, I mean, it's been interesting, as, as you mentioned, in terms of the new cycle, this has really come to prominence again, and it's it's sort of fluctuated over the last two to three years. I mean, from a, from a UN perspective, I suppose foreign terrorist fighters obviously became a, a big issue in the context of Syria and Iraq and the, the big outflow. Um, so a resolution was passed in 2014, uh, 2178, which kind of dealt with how government should respond to the outflow, how they should stop it. So that it, it talks a lot about um, yeah, different measures government should use to stop people um, traveling out to Syria and Iraq. And I think it was, it, it was pretty apparent, particularly um, if you look at the European context, how 2014 was kind of a watershed moment where suddenly um, government started introducing measures that, that either criminalized um, travel or association and, and introduced new measures that made it harder for people to travel. Um, and I suppose, in, yeah, again, in terms of security council at least, Fast forward three years and, and Resolution 2396 looks at the issue of returning and relocating foreign terrorist fighters. So it kind of felt like we've dealt with the outflow. But by 2017, that had kind of dwindled down to, to a fairly negligible number. Now we need to start thinking about what happens when we'll return. But I think, you know, the academic community, again, was at the forefront of this, this question in 2015. But also, I think 20, 2016 and when Paris and Brussels attacks had happened, it was like, well, what does this mean? What will the returning or relocating foreign terrorist fighter problem look like. And we had this wealth of um, research into previous mobilizations and uh, previous examples, and, and really just that question of, you know, will will these individuals come back in huge numbers? Will there be this surge of foreign terrorist fighters coming back, carrying out attacks? And I think, yeah, as I say, in terms of the new cycle flow, there was definitely a sense in 2015, 2016, that this was the big issue and the scale of it was going to be overwhelming um, for a lot of countries. And then, the, the, you know, the, the big flow didn't really happen. It uh, certainly didn't happen to the extent that people were expecting. And it's only really, yeah, again, over the last few months when the extent of the foreign terrorist fight still in um, Iraq and Syria has become apparent that people are now talking about it again. So, yeah, it, it's been a curious one in terms of how it's ebbed and flowed and, around the new cycle. I mean, certainly in terms of the policy cycle at the UN, it hasn't really shifted. It's, it's been the big focus for CTED um, and I think for much of the UN system in, in the CT space for the last three years. And there's a lot of projects and initiatives um, in the UN system as a whole around capacity building on this issue. So it hasn't really gone away for CTED, but I think it, it, it did go away when people kind of felt like maybe the problem was more manageable or more, um, more franchise fighters had died in Iraq and Syria than was expected. I mean, the relocation issue is an interesting one because that hasn't been something that has really been seen at a significant scale. Um, 
there was a, a lot of talk again in, in both the policy and the research community in sort of 2016, 2017 of where next, you know, where will foreign terrorist fighters relocate to um, once the, the caliphate dream is over. And again, that hasn't really happened on a sort of coherent, consistent scale. There's been relatively small numbers that governments and other, others have reported going to um, North Africa or Afghanistan. But um, the sort of foreign terrorist fighter question as a whole, and, and something we tried to highlight in our um, 2018 report on this was just the, the sense of unknown. You know, we had a, a, a not just around the, the data question, but this sense of unknown of this huge numbers who traveled, sm relatively small numbers who'd returned uh, in, in many cases, and a, a relatively small chunk that had been reported dead. And then this kind of relatively large number where their fate was broadly unknown. And I think some of those we're now discovering um, in Iraq and Syria and, and being detained in the last few weeks and months. And I think probably um, never really know the extent to which um, the death tally of, of foreign terrorist fighters. But yeah, I think a, a, a sort of short answer to this question is that from a yeah, UN perspective, this has been a, a massive priority over the last three years. And I think will continue to be so because it's, it's, it's such a broad issue and it has so many potential aspects to it around um, age, around gender, around the, the variety of experiences that people had uh, in the conflict zones and the variety of reasons people have for traveling um, to the conflict zones in the first place. So it, it's it's complex. The scale of it is obviously the thing that people focus on most. But I think the long term nature of it means, and again, something we've really tried to highlight in our reports, that the response to this has to be a long term, what we can say in the short term. The, the sort of immediate threat they pose hasn't has been as significant as people maybe worried it would be, but it's a much broader issue and, and touches on all these big questions around sort of rehabilitation and reintegration and de-radicalization. What does that look like? Can it be effective? And again, something where the research community has been working for a long time and has a lot of um, useful data on. Well, I think yeah, the risk assessment one is a challenging one, and I, I think it, it a lot of the, the current debate around the, you know whether people should return or not just be, it sort of centres around what's an acceptable level of risk and what's a manageable level of risk, and I think understandably populations expect the the level of risk to be kept as near to zero as possible, and again that's what governments are aiming for, and I, I think with any sort of recidivism issue in whatever field of criminology you're interested in, you know, you really can't guarantee a kind of 100% success rate or anything close to it necessarily. So it it is something that member states are still worried about in terms of the effectiveness and, and, and how they monitor and assess risk. Um, but I, I also think there is a there is a lot of expertise out there and it's, it's not necessarily a completely brand new problem. And I think, you know, this is where our role with research is it can be quite key because I think we, we we do need to be a bit more interdisciplinary around how we look at these issues and, and not just broad, like narrowly focus on just pure terrorism and sort of terrorism in 9-11 context I think a post 9-11 context so I, I, th I think there's a huge amount of expertise around um, sort of DDR in different uh, post-conflict situations that is useful and I think there's lots of lessons we can learn from from other 
as I said, other parts of criminology in terms of whether it's gangs or whether just broadly recidivism. So I think that it definitely needs to be a broad approach to how um, governments look at this. And it's something that they're investing a huge amount of time and resources in. I think one of the challenges for them is, and again, something we've really tried to highlight is this need to share um, lessons learned. I think everyone can talk about good practices and, and that's kind of the good news. But it is very difficult for a government to say we've developed this program and actually, you know, this particular element hasn't worked and only 10 percent has been successful because that's just not a message that any any sort of democratic government wants to be sharing with its people. So I think the lessons learned question and, and kind of understanding what works and what doesn't. And again, making sure that we're not just trying to come up with a one size fits all approach is, is, a, is, a, is a really challenging issue. And it is very um, it is very political it is very difficult for for governments to do that. And again, that's where we think that the world of research can really provide that support. And and whether it's doing a a sort of comparative study or looking at different programs and trying to understand what works. And then I guess the question, as always, is the sort of funding and data and whether that's that's available or not. Yeah, I, I mean, I think my view would be it's, it's kind of a sliding scale and there's lots of, you know, there's, there's kind of the ultimate um, the ultimate desired end. But I guess the, the idea of either integrating researchers within government departments or providing them with access to privileged data is kind of probably the, the model where you think you get the most bang for your buck in terms of the, the data and access question is always going to be central to this discussion. Um, so, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a sliding scale, I think. Um, I was recently at a, a workshop in Tunisia where a sort of EU um, MENA forum where, yeah, different governments and different researchers talked about their experiences in this way. Um, yeah, T- Tunisian government has kind of a, a, quite an interesting approach of identifying national priorities from a research perspective, including within C- security, and then essentially creating a, a sort of national program where researchers from around the country are, are working on different strands of this. And a lot of those projects are still ongoing, but it was quite clear that they're very keen to to integrate the findings into their policy. But yeah, di- I think different countries, whether it, even just spelling out um, national priorities, providing feedback on re- research proposals, there's, there's a really there's a definite sliding scale. And I think you know terrorism studies is definitely an area where the, the policy relevance and policy impact is is, is, is central to it in in, in a lot of um, examples. And so I think the more that governments can do to say these are the areas we're prioritizing over the next one, two, five, ten year period. Here's how we can help. Here's how we can pair you up with funding, with data, the better. Because, you know, it's it's easy in the policy world to talk about the need for evidence-based research. And I think sometimes the UN's been guilty of this, saying we want we want research on things that matter to us, but maybe not always spelling out what it is that our priorities are and, and, and not necessarily um, facilitating that support as much as we can. So I think, yeah, it, it's a two-way process. The, the, the two-way comms are kind of something that we see as central to this, that the more dialogue you can have between between the policy and research fields, the more aligned, or I think aligned is probably the wrong, the wrong word, but the more impact that research can have and, and the more, hopefully, the more evidence-based the policy will be. And I think that's kind of what we're all aiming for.
Yeah, I mean, the report um, again, and I think you know this particular sort of trends report is really uh, essentially highlighting the best and, and the most relevant research out there. So it really isn't um, necessarily CTED's conclusion. It really is based on the work of, of researchers. But I think uh, the gender issue, a, is is kind of not just gender equals women. I think there's a, a much broader gender uh, element to a lot of responses, but also the narratives that terrorist groups are, are using. So I think that there's there's that element of uh, some of the language, I think, and uh, there's been some great recent work on sort of either cliches or kind of, yeah, the language that's used in the context of gender and in the context of women in particular is just not necessarily that helpful. So there's, you know, a lot of tropes around uh, jihadi brides and the language that is used just doesn't necessarily reflect the agency of those individuals. And I think what the report is really trying to highlight is that it's not just that it's inaccurate or unhelpful in terms of the broader debate, but it has a real impact on sort of policy responses. So we kind of highlight a number of different areas where that kind of those perceptions around what the role of women in a terrorist group um, could be or should be does have um, negative implications. So one of the examples we, we cite is that women are a, a lot less likely to receive a custodial sentence um, in the context of, of foreign terrorist fights than men are. And, and that's based on uh, not always a sort of case by case basis on what that individual's role was, but rather what their gender is and therefore what that suggests their role would be. So I think one of the, the things we really want to stress is that case by case tailored approach of saying, well, yes, we know a lot of what we know from from ISIL is that the role of women was was seen in a particular way. But that doesn't necessarily mean that those individuals haven't committed crimes while they're, um, in the conflict zone. So I think. A case-by-case -case approach is one of the, the, the key things we've we've emphasised and the Security Council emphasises as well. But I think more broadly that if returning women are, are less likely to receive custodial sentences or, or receive much shorter ones um, due to these kind of gender biases, then it has implications both as a security, potential security threat because they're not being taken seriously. Maybe they're not going to be monitored or, or risk assessed in the same way, but also just in terms of access to rehabilitation and reintegration programs, if they're not deemed to be a threat, does that mean they don't necessarily get the same access to those programs as, as men who return? And what are the implications for that long term around recidivism and around uh, the role these women might play in future as, as radicalised, as recruiters or as attackers themselves? So I think it's, it, it tries to cover quite a lot in, in, in quite a short space of time. But I think it's just it's, it's a really important issue in the context, not just of returnees um, in, in the current situation but more broadly about having a more nuanced understanding of gender in the, in the context of terrorism and counter-terrorism so we also talk in, in the counter-terrorism space around both cve programs but more you know, counter-terrorism policy more generally and, and what role do women have in those conversations and and, and, and policy decisions so yeah it, it's it's a broad um, it's a broad issue and, and gender is one of those issues that's kind of cross-cutting uh, throughout all of cted's work and it, and hopefully, you know, again, I think it's an example of a, a sort of thematic area where there is a lot of really great research out there. And, and, and based on our understanding and conversations with researchers, there's a lot more to come. So, yeah, it's a really exciting space for CETA to be uh, collaborating on.
Yeah, so I mean, human rights, you know, we talk about cross-cutting issues that kind of, um, you know, are important to everything we do. And I think in, in, in some ways that kind of under underplays the role that, that human rights has to play in all of this. And I think, um, you know, the Security Council itself has been very clear that, you know, protecting human rights in, in, in counterterrorism is kind of not just the right thing to do, but it, it's the only way to do effective counterterrorism and effective CVE. So it's it's not a, it's not a nice to have. It's um, it, it should be integral in, in everything that um, member states and the UN does in, in the counterterrorism space. And I think we can, we can all recognise and acknowledge that hasn't necessarily been the case over the last, well, uh, forever, I suppose, in the counterterrorism space, but particularly over the last sort of 15 years plus. Um, I think, you know, the role of research in highlighting, not just highlighting human rights abuses, but in, in, in CV and C2, which I think is really important as something that the UN um, has a really important role at, at sort of recognising these issues and, 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 and identifying them. But I think just, again, showing the impact and showing from an evidence-based point of view, you know, if this programme is it has these serious human rights ramifications, then it is going to be problematic. And, and again, tying it back to what the Security Council has said, which I think is very clear and, and a very clear cut that this is, this is not a nice to have, this has to be uh, integral in everything we do. And I think this is... You know, going back to the conversation about big tech, I think as um, you know, counterterrorism, we're increasingly talking about this whole of society, whole of government um, response. It isn't just going to be, you know, national government X needs to be better at protecting human rights in this context. It's 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 going to cross cut across you know a huge range of actors from civil society, private sector, etc. So I think um, yeah, it's it's important for governments, important for the UN, but it's important in a, a number of ways for a lot of different actors who maybe aren't as used to dealing with these kind of issues and don't necessarily have the expertise. So again, the role of the UN of highlighting the, the issues, the standards, the principles that uh, that programmes or initiatives need to operate under is, is really key. Yeah, so I think a lot of our, um, our work plan has been kind of driven by those two resolutions at the end of 2017 on the returning relocating foreign terrorist fighters and CTES mandate, which did kind of touch on, as I've mentioned, some of the new areas around uh, children, and around gender and around this broad issue of prosecution, rehabilitation and reintegration. So I think from CTED's position, uh, point of view as a whole, we're going to continue on our assessment mission. Uh, we've got a busy year ahead with uh, some pretty big um, assessment missions to, to either big countries or uh, countries with a lot of experience in CT and CVE. So we're going to keep learning uh, in, in that respect. I think the expertise angle, I think the role of technology is something that it's kind of hard to avoid in, in society as a whole, let alone CT. Um, uh, but yeah, I think technology, both from a threat perspective, but from a response perspective, is going to be pretty significant moving forward over the next few years. And I think... Um, in our research digest that we published at the end of January, we kind of had asked uh, six different researchers the, the key issues. And one of the, the questions we asked, all of them was around technology and how that's going to play out. So I think understanding not only what technology can do, I mean, there's a lot of discussion around AI and big data and, and these opportunities, but at the same time, some really huge um, human rights risks around those. So I think technology is going to be, again, at the heart of a lot of what CTED is doing um, moving forward. And I think from me and my team's point of view, 
probably more of the same in terms of the research focus and the issues that we're looking at. But I think certainly the the issue of prosecution, rehabilitation, reintegration, and particularly those last two elements um, is is an area where we know there's there's a lot of interesting research, particularly in the prison prison context. So I think that's going to be an area of focus for us, along with um, gender uh, and continuing to work in that space, particularly with UN women. I think the issue of children and different approaches to children affiliated with terrorist groups, again, is going to be an ongoing issue. We know uh, member states around the world have very different approaches and very different ages of criminal responsibility. So how how they you know, take a sort of case-by-case uh, approach to all of these issues whilst remembering that, uh, you know, children are first and foremost victims in this context. So that I think we, we think that's going to be a really, uh, really challenging issue for member states moving forward as we've seen younger and younger perpetrators of attacks um, and how can governments respond to that while protecting human rights. And then I think the final one is, that, yeah, that broader question, which I guess has never really gone away around radicalization and, you know, the, the understanding of drivers, the local context, but more, more, more importantly, you know, what, what, what lessons can we learn from that and, and push into sort of CV and PV initiatives? Because we, th- you know, the problem objectively is not getting any smaller as 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 we move forward on this uh, issue. So I think more investment in, and more um, resources around that question of of narratives around radicalization and around CBE is going to be an ongoing issue that we're really interested in working with researchers on. Well, all, all of the um, the sort of research-oriented products will be uh, on our website, and I think particularly the the research digest and the um, the global research network newsletter, I would recommend as a, a sort of a very quick overview of how um, how CTED's working with the research community already. But I mean, essentially, from our perspective, we're we're interested in hearing from researchers who are working on any of these issues because I think um, the more access we have to this information, we we obviously like anyone else, read the various different um, terrorism research journals, but we only have so much time. So the more proactive and more engaged dialogue we have with people working on these issues, the better from our perspective, because it just gives us a a much broader base of knowledge to work with when we're engaging with um, the Security Council and member states. So yeah, the the CTED website is the first place to start. But I think if you go to either the digest or the newsletter, you can read through past issues, you can be linked out to different trends reports, trends alerts, and Hopefully, all of those publications just give um, your listeners a better understanding of the role of the UN in this space. I think it is a really important one, and particularly around creating these norms, creating these new laws, but also in the research space, something where hopefully it's relatively uh, innovative and and interesting for researchers to kind of get an understanding of what's happening in the policy space. So yeah, the more more, uh, engagement we have, the better from our perspective.